I'm a butter, if I'm a butter, if I'm a butter, then he's a hot knife, he makes my heart a Our hells, ourselves. We'll tear your soul apart. A flash of light. want to move in here. You don't like it? I suppose it's better than Brooklyn. Oh, don't start, Julia. Don't start what? Look, we can make it work here. I've got a terrific job. You're back on your own turf. This is mine. The God that sent me back. The God I serve in this world and yours. The god of flesh, hunger, and desire. My god. Leviathan, lord of the labyrinth. Stephen Connor describes the vocalic body as the body reconceptualized. The body is recast within the voice. It is a projection, a new way to have and to be. He says, The leading characteristic of the voice body is to be a body in invention 
an impossible, imaginary body in the course of being found and formed. In Hellraiser, every body is a vocalic body. These holes, they for everybody. Cenobites make visible the body invention. Accept change or die. Who are you? Explorers in the further regions of experience. Demons to some, angels to others. The vocalic body, the body recognizing itself. is a vocal technology. The voice is a metaphor for subjectivity, the immaterial that holds the material together, stitching the rags of skin together so immaculately that you can't see the seams. But sometimes, a seam splits. Well, it is Because you and your body both know that this whole thing just isn't fair. That's what's going on. Nothing's fine, I'm but what if? What if I pick you up from your house? We should get out. What if we get out of the voice and into the voice invention, the body invention? The voice and the body merged. An equal opportunity chimera. All sensations on a level plane. Pain has the same value as pleasure. Grief has the same value as ecstasy. The body is no longer a technique of the voice. The two are the same thing. The output of the vocalic body, its production, is the scream. Jesus wept. Julia? And oh my God, oh my God, and oh my God, oh my God.
hello! Hello, listeners! Welcome back to Noisy Ghosts, the Halloween edition. We're here to discuss Hellraiser with our special ghost, Gabe Rosenberg, who is a professor at Duke University where he studies women. Hello, Gabe. He teaches women's studies. How are you doing today? Hey, I'm good. You're doing... Uh, what are you doing right now? I'm, I'm sitting on my couch... Um, I, I just got in for the evening, so um, I'm, I'm just here on, on the phone talking to you and doing nothing else. You doing... have my undivided attention. I'm, <sighs> I'm sitting wrapped listening to your monologue. That's so good. I'm also here with my co-ghost, Andre Kello. Say hi to the people. Hello! Hello! It's such a spooky time. Oh, it is. It's spooky. I love it so much. It's so spooky. Eric is on his way. He'll be here soon. Yeah, uh, where is he? He's missing. He? It's don't... spooky. Oh, it's so spooky. I hope he's not with the Cenobites. In fact, that is my question that I want to start this conversation off with. What do you think the relationships... What do you think the relationship is between the different Cenobites? Like, what's the one between Pinhead and the Vagina Throat Lady? What's the one between him and the fat guy um, with the sunglasses on? What do you think is, like, their whole deal? Like, how did they meet? Was it at a party? A Halloween party? Was it at a at a bar mitzvah? I don't know. How do you think they met? It's a good question. Um, and I'm, I'm really interested to hear your theory. Um, I'm trying to think it through here because, you, you know, trying to, trying to think through this question in relationship to the expectation when I was rewatching the film. Um, because I hadn't seen it in a couple of years, and so I was, I was never watching it. And I was like, you know, quintessential Mesonian horror film. And uh, so I was looking for an AIDS metaphor, actually. Oh, yeah, that's like kind film. of the first uh, thought, right? Is that there has to be an AIDS metaphor. Because it's 1987. Yeah, and, then, and then there isn't one, though. You yeah. don't think? It, and, and then there really isn't one? No, no. I mean, you could. I, I think you could, but, but the. Um, it requires a sort of like, I don't know, a pretty essentialist view of maybe BDSM uh, sort of subculture. Um, Which you don't think is the, present the in the film. Such, I'm sorry? You don't think there is an essentialized notion of BDSM culture in the film. You think it's pretty nuanced and complicated, so much that there can't be an AIDS metaphor. No, I mean, I mean, if you have to read BDSM culture, it's necessarily... Uh, um, homosexual. And, and, I, and I don't necessarily think that there is enough sort of material in the film to sustain that, to sustain that reading. Particularly because the film seems to go to um, really extensive lengths to demonstrate the heterosexuality of Frank. How do you mean? Um, oh, of Frank in particular, yeah. Frank is a weird, yeah, yeah, weird and character. He's a pretty implausible character. He goes from you know, having sex with um, his brother's wife to pursuing mystical treasure boxes, as if that was, I mean, if there was ever sort of like a good demonstration of the domino theory of the other consulting sex. Right, like, you, you do one you strange know, thing that's first, a little bit un, uh, unacceptable, and then next thing you know, you're falling headfirst into the pits of un, undescribable hell. You think that's the connection yeah, that the yeah. film seems to posit? Is that there's like the aberrant sexuality is the one that f- is that Frank is fucking his brother's wife, and then that it, it's a like a um what is it they say like a gateway drug to the to the sins of hell? It's one of the premises yeah, of Hamlet, I mean, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, that's true. Wait, right, right. You, well, that's a good point. 
How do you mean? Explain thyself. Well, because... Uh, That's what they say in Hamlet. Explain thyself. Because the whole thing, everything falls apart because Claudius... Well, oh, because of Gertrude. ...wants to be yeah. with Gertrude, right? And so... Yeah. And this is related to... Um, the problems of uh, Henry VIII. And also the Greeks. Like, that was, like, a, all the stories, like... Well, sure, in, yeah. It's just a super Greek problem. Yeah, kings were constantly marrying uh, women who used to be married to their brothers. Or, you know, women marrying men who used to be married to their sisters or whatever. You know, incest happening all the time in, in uh, you know, for thousands of years in royal lineage. And... It probably screwed with people's heads, not just in a, like, a religious sense, but in a kind of uh, psychosexual way, right? Yeah. It's got to be weird for, like, the whole country to depend on you having a child with your brother's wife. I think, though, that, like, in Hellraiser with Julia, I think that Julia, I think that Julia has a way more fucked up sexuality than... Frank does, which is to say, okay, here's why I say that, because obviously Frank is into some fucked up shit. But I think that Julia is more fucked up because she's this, like, embodiment of, like, upper class English um, suburban sexuality that that and that whole thing collapses because of her attraction to frank so frank is sort of like free to do whatever he wants like larry writes him off from the get-go like yeah frank's kind of weird like because he, he, he doesn't even know but the nationalistic questions yeah. are, are complicated in the film though because they go out of their way to erase all of the evidence that it takes place in england that's true gabe do you have anything to say about that oh uh, well i mean it even it almost like shifts it's just flirtation like, it, it, it seems pretty clearly that it's in England at the beginning, and then suddenly it's not. Um, but suddenly you have, like, Jersey, like Jersey workmen getting getting fodder, very unfortunately. I know this getting does films, the workmen don't, don't fare very well. Um, but I was thinking of, like, uh, there's a the sexiness deficit between the two brothers. Can Ooh, we discuss I, how know? much of a dweeb Larry is? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like I'm, I'm like, you know, you're gonna, you're gonna fall into hell to get him out. You know, I don't, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't see that. Uh, yeah, it was crazy. But, oh, so this is in the second was, film. Oh yeah, wait. Yeah, yeah I mean, right. Yeah, and it is one continuous. Right. Right. Yeah, Frank so, is so is wearing I, Larry's I, I, skin, I, I, and then in the second film, uh, what's her name? The the daughter. Oh, Kirst- Kirsty. Uh, Kirsty, who doesn't have a name that's suitable yep, for an H.P. Lovecraft-style uh, <laughs> terrifying <laughs> horror film. <laughs> Tiffany. <laughs> right. Kirsty will, will crawl, crawl into hell to get her father out in the second film. But come on. It doesn't really seem like she, you know, really likes him all that much in the first one. Oh, because I she's like, really like I need to find a job. Well, she... I'm sorry? Um, he's, yeah, Larry's just kind of, he's sort of this cloying, you know, uh, you almost feel bad for Julia. You kind of, you're, you're like, I really understand why you went for Frank. Also, just because Frank's a lot sexier, and he's like, straightforward, um, kind of sexy, kind of bad boy uh, character in, in a pretty hot way. I, I was just sort of, I was taken with that pretty much initially. Was, what a profound sexiness deficit there was. Yeah, he's, a, he's such a goober. We're really far away from your initial question, by the way. I think. No, it's, I don't care. What do, we, what do we know, really, about Frank? 
We know that he is, is he, he also just doesn't look anything like Larry. He also, he, he almost seems to be painted to be like sort of ambiguously ethnic in a certain sense, which is to say, like, they, I don't know, like he, he seems weird. I don't really get his deal. I don't know where he's from well, or what his he, life he's is. Feeling, he's not clean shaven. He might be like, no, he's, he's got a good scruff. He's got the dark features. Uh, he's got a pretty nice body. Um, and you kind of get the feeling that he might be sort of an Indiana Jones figure. That he's like, listen, maybe, maybe that's what he's going for there. If he were Indiana, Indiana Jones Indiana. and he was really into fucking, like, that's what... Well, that's Indiana it. Jones, he has a lot of sex in those movies. Yeah, but he's not into fucking. It's a different kind of sex. They, he makes love. Indiana Jones makes love. Frank fucks. I don't know. You know, I think you could really honestly, I think you're onto something here, Gabe. I think you could see at least the first Hellraiser film as a, like, at, you know, at least better than uh, Crystal Skull. You know, it's <laughs> like if we had to imagine something that would happen to Indiana Jones in addition to the stories that we already have, you know, it's not the craziest thing in the world to think of him being like in Morocco and buying some. <laughs> Bizarre mystical What's artifact. What's your pleasure, Mister Jones? <laughs> yeah, accidentally yeah, opening the puzzle box and and um, right, right. I could see, I could see Indiana Jones actually, you I, know, doing it. He's always poking around in all kinds of different places that he's not supposed to be. Yeah, um, yeah. Somebody asked him. Although clearly, Indiana Jones does have respect for. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's going to want to know. He's going to want to know what's inside that puzzle box, and. Um, so I, I can I can see that I, I actually I wonder if it was an intentional because he also does have the sort of khaki um he's got like the khaki uh French has like the, the sort of khaki pantsuit thing going on. Uh that's very reminiscent of Indiana Jones. Um he's got the he's got the thick sort of uh scruff and, yeah. and uh, kind of nine o'clock shadow and then he's really into these sort of mystical esoteric. He's very well um, read. He's a well-read yeah, yeah. guy. <laughs> well, you know, I think it's possibly that... There's a paper here, guys. <laughs> it's related to maybe that, not just the H.P. Lovecraft thing, but in general, the late 19th century, early 20th century image of the adventurous Englishman who is going out into darkest Africa and, you know, discovering all of these, uh, you know, cults and uh, artifacts and uh, mystical forces and, you know, like... Uh, Alan Quartermain, right? But there's this thing that I really like about Clive Barker that's so like explicitly English and different from Indiana Jones in this sense. Because I was reading, um, I've been reading the book of Books of Blood, where um, the Hellbound Heart is as a short story first existed, and there's like all these stories about these really fucked up things that happen to people who are being very cozy in their houses. Like there's this like obsession with like tidiness and coziness and how that all gets fucked up eventually and that's like the, it's like in a sense there's this one story about like a, an essentially a hell uh, a demon poltergeist that just like fucking destroys this guy's house and it's just like the horror of it is not that there's a poltergeist in his house the horror is that his house is all messy and like he doesn't know what to tell his daughters and he can't open up to them it's like the most british thing i've ever read in my life mm. and i'm wondering if how yeah, it is. what this is Australian. this is a uh-huh. Uh, Deborah Cohen. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's a great book about one. Um, 
interior sort of like the interior domestic space of British homes, the mm-hmm. moment of the British Empire. Yeah. And there is there is this like very very deep and profound sort of obsession. Right mm-hmm. with exactly this point, sort of uh refined sleepiness. Um as yeah, as something that's that's kind of hardwired into imperial culture. Yeah. Um, so this is like the yeah, you're sitting on that it's a sort of like uh what is what's fundamentally disturbing about the presence of, of uh well, Frank, I suppose, is a phantasm in some senses, but also that, that uh, Frank is himself kind of a disruptive character insofar as he treats the house so poorly in the first place. Yeah, and, th- um, and that's how you first know he's a bad guy is because the house is a mess. And how? what is his version of defiling the temple of the house? It's uh, not cleaning up his food. <laughs> and uh, there's like porn co- and shit everywhere. And he, and he collects a lot of um, collage art. <laughs> oh, it's stuff that it's sort I'm of oh, unforgivable. <laughs> it's it's the kind of stuff that later on would be like a YBA stuff, you know, like a Chris Ophelia or a um, uh, uh, some of that Andre Serrano kind of a thing. Yeah, you know, yeah. where it's just like uh, instead of um, you know piss Christ, it's uh, a, a crucifix sitting in a jar of spoiled mayonnaise. Frank would love piss Christ. But I I want to make a point that I think might be relevant to this British domestic interior space thing and how it might connect to um, the way bodies and meat are treated in, in these movies. Because I think, I think there might be a way in which the body and skin is like the ultimate domestic space. And when that gets defiled, it's like a meta a sort of like the house becomes a metaphor for the skin and the body and the sort of écorché that is keeping everything together. And what happens when that gets f- flayed apart, you know, is the ultimate horror. So like the first horror is the destruction of the house. But that's just like uh, like a, a microcosm of the of the destruction of the body sort of as it gets flayed and transported to hell. Yeah. The, the bo- so do you, do you think that that. Do you think that that extends well into the second film, though? Right, because now mm. we have this new setting, and we're now we're now in the, the sort of hospital. I actually um, think it extends. And to the extent that domestic domestic spaces do appear, it's in it's in the kind of uh, fancy fancy sort of modernist eighties uh, apartment um, that the doctor keeps. Right. Um, but but, the... but I'm I'm kind of curious about this because I think it's an interesting comment on the first film. Okay, but I think here's my case for why I think it extends to the second film, though. Okay, so in the first film, you have, there's this, um, there are walls of the house and there's skin to the body and muscle to the body. In um, the second film, when they go down to hell and there's like that weird Lovecraftian labyrinth thing, you remember when they go into hell and there's that giant flash of light that's a Cenobite, that Cenobite that's its only corporeal manifestation is a flash of light, but there are all these walls that lead up to it. I think that might be a way of sort of externalizing the or an externalization of um, the domestic sphere. Like there's this these walls become a metaphor for the body, but the walls here are stronger than the body. You know, does that make sense? Sort of like the body in hell in the second film is it's practically a uh, a piece of clothing. Yeah, that you can slip in and out of. You know, there. Yeah. Doesn't, like Julia does a couple times in the second Christy movie. Doesn't Christy wear yeah, Julia's does. skin in the second film? Oh yeah, that's a huge reveal. I love that part. I yeah. love Kirsty. I yeah. do. I like Kirsty. I think she's a sympathetic character. I do. 
Well, she's she's only really a character in the second film. In the first film, the only thing we know about her is that uh, she gets bored at her parents' parties and she drinks too much. Oh, and also that she's her parents really want her. Oh, Ju- uh, no, not Julia. Larry is like, you don't have to get a job. It's cute that you want to. She's like, no, I need to get a job. Like she's like that cute rich girl that like really wants to go out on her own and like, no, I'll get my own internship. Like, I don't know. I but, think well, she's now charming. Well, she has a job, though, right? Now she's a... Um... <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh Eric Wenzel is here. Come, Speaking Eric, of breaking come down in. walls. Hey, Hi. Hey. Yeah, you, you're all set to go right there. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were talking about Hellraiser. So, oh. oh, wait, here. Let me... Oh, no, I'm, yes. I'm really excited that you brought up the, the Britishness. Um, it's so Britishness in the movie. Part mo- of it, because... <laughs> I do. I do hope we get to talk about David Cameron. I, I have a lot of about the what? I'm sorry. A lot of very. Uh... What's that? About the Lovecraft. What did you say? You no. Wanna... I, I hope we get to talk about David Cameron at some point. Oh uh, shit! Were you thinking about David Cameron when you were watching the movie, and how? If so, how and in what ways? <laughs> <laughs> Is no, that... no, I, wa- I wasn't, because Hellraiser, as much as I love it, it's not my go-to for, um, like, human animal, uh, particularly livestock film. Right. Film. I mean, that, yeah. you have to talk about Texas Chainsaw Master if we're going to talk about that. And, mm-hmm. and that might be, I mean, I can talk about Texas Chainsaw Master for, for years, as a matter of fact. But um, the, uh, I, I, was, I was looking for it. I was kind of, like, looking for maybe a David, a David Cameron uh, sort of connection and all of your sort of hanging chains with the hooks at the end and, and things of that nature. Yeah, uh, we're quite reminiscent of um, of the slaughterhouse, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and certainly the abattoir. Uh, the, the, <laughs> yeah, the the feel of the abattoir and, and sort of um, unbound flesh. Um, but it is, yeah, I, I, I guess it sort of like lacks that tidiness, but. Um, uh, I was I was looking for something maybe a little bit more bestial that, that never never really really gets caught. Although I guess there's the moment um, the moment when Doctor uh, kind of gets backed into the um, upright coffin thing and uh, gets it's invaded what by whatever critter it is that uh, that lurks within that transforms him into the uh, And are um, you talking about the engineer? You, you certainly think about that. Are you talking about the engineer? There's the Cenobite, the engineer that comes in the second movie. He comes like crawling down the like hallway. And in uh, when you watch it on Netflix, you can see it in HD probably for the first time. <laughs> and it looks terrible. In 30 years, and and you can clearly see the men in black outfits pushing this ridiculous <laughs> thing down the hall. <laughs> it rolls. It looks it, like Cronenberg. It really opens up the the like. Um, I think this movie is a lot about labor too, and about like men's bodies doing work because i think there's like a, a way in which pinhead is like this sort of weird in some way benevolent overlord uh, like um communist sort of dictator where he's like all sensations are the same they are all equal to each other in value we must love pain and pleasure like they are the same like this like constant imposition of like the he's lateral very, he's very yeah he's very Freudian. yeah way. maybe he's more I mean, he's Freudian. Like, he's He's not benevolent, You don't think... Um, well, yeah, Penhead isn't benevolent. That's Because he's like, I will give you pleasure and pain until you can't tell the difference, and then I will destroy you. Will yeah, he destroy that's, you? That's like a direct yeah. line from the, 
it's like a direct line from the sexual aberrations. Um, yeah. Freud essentially says that. I mean, he says that right. uh, the um, at, at sort of like some level, at, at any sort of like appreciable level of intensity, uh, you lose the ability to distinguish between pain and pleasure. They simply become sensation. Um, the overtaking of sensation. So I, actually, when I was listening to him say that, I, I was like, "Yeah, this this uh, <laughs> is really uh, is that his uh, that is Freud very thoroughly and tend to." But you know, I wonder. I wonder yeah. if uh, Clive Barker explicitly and intentionally employs s- stuff that's sort of like pseudo Freudian or crypto Freudian in an attempt to cultivate a. a like a sense of disgust and uh, unease that's like um, a, a subconscious thing that's that's based around just like the way that Freud identified certain kinds of um, psychological taboos. He would just like, he, he wants you to think about those things and feel those things, not necessarily in order to better understand the human mind, but simply just to make you feel gross. That's, I don't know, it's so yeah, well, nearly... There's a lot of objection. I mean, I thought, uh, you know, there was uh, a real... <laughs> I, I felt like Cristela with, with my yeah. colors or the thing. Um, Eleanor yeah, didn't want to talk about Cristela. of objection it's not that I didn't want to talk about Kristeva. It's just like whenever people talk about horror movies, it's like the first thing is like, well, Kristeva, objection, the two things. Like, And it's like, yeah, it's true. But like, that's always that's typically like sort of it. And, and yeah, you have to talk about Kristeva. That's yeah. Like, what? It's, I'm a lay horror person. You know, like a lay horror. We don't hear about hear from Barbara Creed tonight that we will Monsters really not have. Barbara Creed, I owe the knowledge of Barbara Creed to my Grinnell education, actually. By the way, everyone, Gabe and I went to the same undergrad, though not at the same time. Um, yeah, about the monstrous feminine, because I think the monstrous feminine is in the vagina throat lady. Or a vulva. No, it's a vagina. It's not even a vulva. It's a vagina. It's That's the a whole fuck. thing. It's the whole thing. It's not even just the vagina, Eric's right. It's like the whole fucking repro- <laughs> reproductive apparatus with speculum and everything. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yikes. I love... No, I love her, though. I also love how compared... To go back to my question about the relationships between the Cenobites, I love her and Pinhead's rapport. Like, because she's always like, let's, let's, like... She yeah, there's was, no time. There's there's no time. And she's always, And Pinhead's like, wait... That was actually what that's Andre. That's why he got elected president. That's why he's president because he's very um, even keeled, and well, he's the Pope of Hell, right? Yeah. Apparently, according to the the text in the Hellbound Heart, he's like the Pope of Hell, which is like the hostess with the the ghostess the with the mostess. I don't think that they ever uh, do a good job of uh, explicitly or uh, coherently outlining exactly what the theological significance is of this guy. You know, like, it's hell, but it's not really hell. It's like some alternate dimension full of weird aliens, maybe? But also, He could just just be head of their troop. Like, it almost seems like there are a bunch of units that go around doing this. This is why I think they're communist dictators, is because they're sort of disorganized, but incredibly, like, um, proud and, like, a team team players with each other. That's what I think. Well, if if these guys are if these guys are Tories, I think that they would be really upset to hear that. You think they're Tories? You, you think, think Penhead's a Tory? Well, it depends on what kind of excess and what kind of suffering these guys are embodying. Are they embodying the excess of the t- totalitarian uh, cap uh, communist state, or the excesses of the totalitarian, uh, you know, 
fascist state of Thatcher's England. Wait, is this how we connect to Cameron, maybe? Like, what is Cameron's relationship to Pinhead? No, Pighead. Pighead? Pinhead? Ha ha ha. What do you think? <laughs> oh, very well done. Well done. Yeah. <laughs> well, the bodies are, they're butchered, right? They're butchered like pigs. Mm-hmm. They're constantly being split apart and... Actually, they're not being butchered like pigs. Pigs are butchered in a sort of orderly way. Yeah, so mm-hmm. that you can eat them. These yeah. these creatures are splitting people in ways that seem counterintuitive to the architecture of the body. Well, mm-hmm. I don't know. Have you read his book called A Day No Pigs Would Die? Who's It made me weep. Wait, what book? What... It's a uh, it's just this written by this farmer dude from the turn of the century and it's like the most heartbreaking depressing story and part of it's about this pig uh that this guy raises as a piglet and then it turns out she, they're going to make her into a sow, but she's like barren or whatever she's reason. Just, oh, she's barren? <laughs> so it's just like it's just like the most farm wisdom factual, like life is shit. Like it doesn't even have philosophy on it. And when he describes when he has to like slaughter his pig for the first time with his dad, and it's this pig that he's raised as a piglet. And then, you know, it's like his pet. And then yeah. he's going to have this great life with her. But they're like, well, we can't have her a sow because, you know, we tried that and so mm. the only thing we can do is slaughter because like you know there's, there's no a, bottom line you know it's like yeah. there's a very slim margin and he just factually describes slaughtering a pig by hand oh man and you- i mean it is heartbreaking and it's also like you're like where is everything like he just describes it and then there's like there's nothing left oh shit so i would maybe still compare it to that where we just see those turning we see the turning pillars the, and there's yeah. like two little bits of flesh and you're like where's the body yeah. Like it has the same when you go through this whole experience of this pig being slaughtered, it's like, where is everything? You know, yeah. like they just talk about unfolding it and whatever and it's just like gone. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean that's, that's in, in pig slaughter you're at you're you're right. Like there there are no pigs left over. Uh that's what we call hot dogs. Um right. for the most part. So uh Isn't that isn't that yeah, a pig I'm, thing? When they say we use everything, even the squeal or something like that? <laughs> Oh, well, the, the line about pigs is that um, there's there's sort of it may be actually an apocryphal poem, uh. but it's uh, it's about breakfast, and uh, I'm trying to remember mm-hmm. the name of the poet, very famous poet. It's uh, something to the effect of um, the chicken gives the egg, uh, but the pig gives its all. Mm. Oh and man, I love that. Yeah, and it's because. It's because pigs, um, like the way the way that people think about pigs is that they um, uh, they don't really have any secondary products associated uh, they, uh, with, with their um, sort of lives. So they're not like chickens; they don't give eggs. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't. Their feathers aren't useful for something. Um, they don't give milk. Uh, you can't. I mean, they do have like whiskers and things like that that can be used in different um, painting hogs of, bristle uh, brushes. Were used mm-hmm. for like brushes historically yeah. and stuff like that, but. But you don't raise pigs for for their um, uh, for their whiskers. That's not a. That's, that's that not, seems super that's, decadent. That's not really very. I common. must only have yeah. the pigs' whiskers. Wait, can well, I? Just... There is a thing though that, um, and maybe uh, you, you could tell us more about this. Uh, pigs can be used for things apart from you know the products, but rather for things like, uh, I you know I guess the first thing that comes to mind is traditionally uh, for uh, hunting truffles, right? But now it's dogs because the pigs would eat the truffles. Right? Which I, which makes me love pigs more. Oh, I thought you were <laughs> yeah, going to say like football. That's true. Um, that's true. So so pigs uh, historically could be used for for, uh, for hunting truffles or other um, mushrooms. 
Um, and that's primarily because they're really good foragers. Um, mm. But that, that wasn't very many pigs. Right. And that's, uh, I mean, in some communities, sometimes people would use pigs as, um, pigs like, watch, watch pigs. Sure. Um, that sounds like that. a lot of fun. That rules. Uh, I like a watch pig. And then, um, they're used to process garbage. Um, oh. but, people, like in but even or like in all Hannibal. those sorts of circumstances, yeah. you, you do wind up eating the pig. Uh, mm-hmm. you, you're, you're not, uh, it's not going to live on pretty indefinitely. You still mm-hmm. wind up eating it. And its body, uh, its body is the ultimate product. It's yeah. not exactly true with bubbles, but maybe you wouldn't eat. Yeah. You know, I could, can I just make a brief comment about something uh, Eric said earlier about when you mentioned that the pig was barren? I I know it's supposed to be, like, offensive to, like, actual human being w- women when you say that they're barren or, like, re- or like infertile or rather than infertile because it's just, like, but I think it's so fucking goth. Like, I think there's something really goth about being barren. Like, my insides are completely a void. Like, I think that's so goth. Anyway, I wasn't sorry. trying to be offensive. No, that's no, you're ta- you were goes. no, you were talking about pigs. It's fine. Like, yeah, you were talking about pigs, not people. It's totally fine. Yeah. And then, so then, I mean, so is that you're saying, Gabe, that the reason that pigs have sort of occupied this position in like children's literature and stuff is because they only really have that one main use, which is as as meat. That that's sort of the like with, with yeah, these few I exceptions, mean, yeah. I think I think as, as was correctly noted. I mean, that's not a hundred percent true, and that they can perform other forms of labor. But yeah, for the most part, their their role has been to serve as meat, uh, mm-hmm. and often it's like the reserve of meat. But mm-hmm. you know, the part of it also meat. is that in a lot of like a lot of communities, there's uh, there it's sort of the joke is that they're they're so delicious that they even want to eat themselves. Um, so what? you see like a lot of, uh, that they're, the pictures so delicious that they either want to eat themselves. Uh-huh, yeah. Um, uh, and so you see just like a lot of like, uh, like visual sort of like graphics and stuff like that with, um, the pigs, like a to eat themselves, mm-hmm. uh, or preparing to eat other pigs. Um, and Jesus. maybe that's because they're perceived as being greedy, greedy because they'll eat anything. Mm. Um, but also... Uh, just because of, of how delicious many people find their, their meat. Like, it's like so delicious that they're even willing to eat themselves. But I think it's also, in, in some senses, because um, you could make an argument that, like, kids are more than any other um, livestock animals extremely close to humans in a number of different ways. And so, uh, when you're eating a kid, um, you're also you're engaging you're engaging in just about as close as you can to cannibalism. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that that's it's also sort of reflected on a lot of um, uh, sort of taboos around eating pigs. Uh, I mean, I can say more about that. It's like, what are the, so, like, why are humans and pigs so close together? But it, they actually are, you know, sort of like, yeah. on a number of different um, Yeah. One version of, like, this episode I had thought of where I was, I was thinking about talking about um, Midnight Meat Train, the, and thinking about, What's and then uh, which is a Clive Barker story, also a movie starring an early career, not even an early career, mid career Bradley Cooper. Um, what as a yeah after Wedding Crashers? Yeah, <laughs> this is the project he said yes to after Wedding Crashers. Is this like a train made of meat? No, it's a it's a, a subway train in New York in City? New York City. It's very important that it's in New York City. It's about actually kind of about how much Clive because Barker hates <laughs> New York City, and oh, it's cool. about a train. And the thing that he hates about New York City but, is that there's a subway train full of 
monsters that eat people? No, no. It's just the one. Well, no. Okay, it's complicated. There's this butcher, and he has to kill people on this particular train every night. That's like loaded and like they. It's like prepared by these people called the city fathers, who um. And uh, they must be fed. They were the people that, like, they're, like, the old ones. They're supposed to be sort of, like, some ancient, ancient god slash devil that lives way down below the subway, subways of New like York City. Is this, like, the Washingtonians? Have you heard this myth? Yes, I have. But but what's happening here is that there's this, and then there's this butcher, and he has to kill the people, and then they the fathers eat eat the flesh, and that's what keeps the city going. Like what what makes New York City function is the fact that these city fathers are being fed human beings every day, every night. And yeah, it's very good. Um, But anyway, there's like it literalizes like New York will eat you alive. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And like the and he has to skin and he he butchers and he's a very good butcher. He's a very good butcher. Like they make a point in the book to like describe how good of a butcher he is. They're like, he's the best. (laughs) Wait, this isn't the movie that's out now where he's like the cook or whatever. It's called Burn or something. No, 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 no. no. No, This is a different one. This is a different one. And it's like. But the, it's but it's about people director. are hung up or you know oh. hanging like pigs in on on the subway train, and I was thinking about talking about that and like the sort of proximity between human beings when they're on the train mm-hmm. is like is the like the proximity between pigs in styes. Well, it's a shame you didn't. Yeah, that would have been another that would have been another story that we could have told. But anyway, yeah, I mean, I, I think we just did. Anyway, yeah, but I think there's like a there is a relationship I think between. I don't know. Like, well, no. What do you think is the relationship between, like, pigs and English culture? Is there something particularly English about pigs, Gabe? Um, well, the English have been, um, were for a very long time, like, the world's, um, like, known as, like, the world's leading pig breeders. Um, Mm -hmm. sort of center, uh, at least the pig breeding in the, um, Atlantic world kind of, Change on on the UK, and uh, they're they're just sort of like longstanding, um, longstanding animals of the English uh, the English countryside, um, and for the most part, uh, people in the UK have have had no problems eating pigs, um, which hasn't mm. always been true everywhere else. No, of course not. Um, uh, and and so I suppose there's a, a sort of a deep uh, a deep tie there as well. Um, I don't know. That's 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 a good question. I mean, the the, the British are, are are very attached to all of their livestock, and um, particularly, at least in the contemporary moment, um, the supposed uh, kind of purity and genetic heritage of their livestock. Yeah. Um, so, what do you that think? Goes, that goes for their cows as well as their pigs. So, how do you think that plays out in the Cameron thing, in terms of purity well, so or discourses of purity? I my. I actually, I, I think that um, we we want to think that people were like really outraged by the Cameron situation, and um, I, I actually, for a variety of different reasons, I don't think that it, it actually is very significant. Or it wound up not being very significant. Yeah, considerably less significant than people would have thought it would be, given that what was being described, at least if what was being described was actually true, um, seems to be quite grotesque. And um, I could talk about it really in, in relationship to probably the better contrast is with uh, the first episode of Black Mirror. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, which I yeah I saw that. Yeah, <laughs> can and, you can you tell you the know, team? 
if anyone hasn't seen it. Have you have what you guys seen? Spoiler. I mean, it's fine. It's the, it's, well, it's the premise of the episode. Yeah. Well, I just because I yeah, heard something's you, you awful. Never warn people that this would be a this would be a big spoiler for for Black Mirror. But oh, okay. um, I haven't seen this episode. Basically, what happens is uh, this this art terrorist abducts um, a princess and then says that he's going to kill the princess unless the prime minister has sex with a pig on live national television. And um, the notion here, I suppose, is that this kind of breach of the human-animal boundary, in particular, um, will be the ultimate kind of taboo um, and totally discredit political authority. Um, that if the prime minister winds up having sex with a pig, that it would be so disruptive that it, that it would unleash a kind of like anarchic uh, sort of response. Um, that, in other words, people couldn't couldn't really wrap their minds around the idea that the prime minister would, for the purposes of saving his human life, be willing to have sex with a pig. And, and I, yeah. um, the great twist, of course, is that that's not what happens. She has sex with a pig, but it doesn't actually uh, cause much of a problem. But that it actually helps his career quite substantially. So of course, sort of like supposed um, uh, taboo around this interspecies uh, uh, contact winds up not being particularly powerful at all. And in fact, the political order is entirely able to accommodate it. And his wife is really the one who bears uh, the unfortunate kind of uh, emotional burns of the situation. Yeah, to me, um, it's so much like more... Proposal. Yeah, to me, it's more interesting that it wasn't a big deal. Like... Than if it had been yeah, a big well, deal. So, <laughs> and let me let me say like yeah, like the the fact that in the show that it, it winds up not being a big deal is interesting in its own right. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would contrast it. I would I would strongly contrast it to the Cameron situation in the sense that the reason why having sex with a pig is supposed to be so deeply discrediting and, and so like profoundly taboo um, is because it's, it's really like sex without a possibility of a future. It's, um, oh, it, oh! In the same way that, like, that's uh, the queer theory read, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and, and so it's, there's 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 simply no future to this. You can't have you can't have an intimate relationship with kids. You can't derive pleasure from it. Um, you certainly you certainly can't produce offspring. And so it's really it's um it's sex with like a, a profound sort of emptiness or absence. It's very hard of it. The thing about the other challenge situation is that um, I think people would quickly recognize that what's going on there is that he's being hazed. And so first and foremost, people would probably recognize that he's actually the victim of hazing, mm-hmm. uh, and that in most other contexts, you would recognize that David Cameron is, uh, if, if what happened was true, is in some senses the victim of um, a kind of uh, sexual assault. Right? Yeah, Which for sure. Um, and then, like, Secondarily, though, the reason why he puts up with this sexual assault and the reason why he puts up with this hazing is because he wants to gain, uh, like, the social capital that comes with being in this elite club at Oxford. And it works. Uh, that, that's how he becomes very successful. Um, and also, and I, so I think that po- possibly that people have this idea already in their heads that the kinds of things that people have to go through in order to get into positions of power are something like this. And they, 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 yeah, absolutely. And in, in, and in fact, if you dislike what's going on here, it's probably because of what it says about like 
the British social uh, structure and, and sort of the class, uh, class structure. But if, if you don't like that, and you don't like the fact of, like, aristocrats trained at Oxford holding powerful government positions, um, you're probably not a conservative voter in the first place. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's sort of a litmus test for um, your attitude about the British class system. Um, and so <laughs> I don't really think that that's going to... That, that really has much kind of, um, I don't know, fuel for political controversy in the context of the UK. Right. That makes sense. That's well, the other thing with the pig is it does it can't consent. Yes. When you have sex with an animal, there's that whole question that comes in, is it about the moral of it? Because it's an... It's an interspecies thing, but it's also an yeah. animal. You but know, that's that what I think like, is interesting about the, the, the fact animals, that... Pig is dead, though. I mean, it was a pig head. Right? Yeah. Right. So, well, I mean, also just when you were talking about the pun. It's not really coming into it. Right, but you were yeah, talking about the. Really here. In the Black Mirror episode, though. Well, it's um, necrophilia. Yeah. You, if you have sex with a corpse, it's disrespectful to the body of the corpse. Yeah. I and mean, we do all kinds of disrespectful things to the bodies of pigs. Mm-hmm. You know, but, uh, you know, to have sex with one is, is just a bridge too far, right? Mm hmm. You know, you're well, not. It, has, it seems like a weird classist <laughs> thing, too. I mean, does anybody really think that, though? I mean, because that, that's, that's what I would, I would sort of push back on. That. I would say that you know, I think most people would, would, would sort of be like, well, you know, the rest of the pig got eaten, and so really it's not such a big deal that they disrespected it in the session, particularly because it doesn't seem like there was like, pleasure being derived. He wasn't doing it for, like, bestial perverse purposes. It wasn't because. Maybe you did. I don't know. I'm, but even know, if you're being forced to, the people uh, forcing you are perverse. I think to make someone. What does do that, that word even mean? Well, I don't know. It's just weird to stick your genital in. Okay, a dead here's mouth. what I think is. I, it's weird to stick your genitals in anything. Here is what I think is sort of interesting, though, about the the David Cameron thing, especially with the frame that Gabe put around it in terms of sexual assault as a result of hazing, is that I think there's a way in which both Eric and Andre are right about the defilement of a pig's of a pig's body like it's it's one a pig can't consent to a dead pig de- certainly can't consent so there's this there's that issue and then that happening under the auspices of auspices how do you say that word auspices yeah, um cool. of uh of like social gain well, is super thing. fucking weird and crazy to me like i don't know it seems really class it, it seems there's something very strange about an upper class you know Oxford like you said, yeah, yeah, it's Oxford, it's nobility, and then it's also like something incredibly vile, and then it also, you know, it, it has a little bit of a tinge of the like uh, epithets against Welsh people and how they have sex with sheep, you know, and it has yeah. this weird classist thing where it's like these are a bunch of like privileged lads, and what do they do? Yeah. Like we get a head from the a hog's head from the butcher, and then we yeah. force each well, other to stick our penises in it. It's a literalization of the long-standing, uh, like, labor claim that, you know, the rich and the in the UK are big fuckers. Right. Right? So it's, it's a literalization of that. But, but there's nothing new about that. I mean, that's, again, it's, it's just sort of like, it's a, it's a litmus test for how you feel about the British prospector. I, I don't actually think, for example, that anyone is disturbed because pigs can't consent. No, yeah, no, it's I was true. referring I think, to the I black. This does, this does I, bring it all. Can we stop for a second? When I said the consent thing, I thought I was just referring more to the live sex D- thing uh, from Black Mirror, and yeah. we were talking about different reasons, you know, like sex mm-hmm. without future and stuff. I was also thinking about bestiality when it's performed on yeah. an animal that's alive. Well, that 
There's well, an none of us are accusing you of being a bestiality prude, Eric. <laughs> okay. Just want to say, no, you know, it's no, how does the pig just, feel? He could have at least gone at, down you know, on it. <laughs> <laughs> Be a gentleman. I write about this in, in other contexts, as, as, as Eleanor probably knows, but, mm-hmm. you know, like, over 80% of all pigs are produced through artificial insemination. Mm-hmm. And, um... The, in fact, in the United States, laws are written, um, specifically laws criminalizing species sexual contact, are written uh, to exempt artificial uh, insemination um, to make it legal um, to be able to do that within the context of meat production. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's pretty interesting with the question of, of animal consent and something like genetic mm-hmm. consent, uh, because in the context, uh, in some contexts, it's true, it could a pig can't consent, and that becomes the grounds for protecting a pig from interspecies sexual assault. But then, in other contexts, the fact that the pig can't consent is more or less um, the, the sort of limitation for uh, reproductive evidence that's necessary to produce meat. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, once so, for pleasure, once work. I mean, this, on the consent issue, humans are not terribly consistent. They, they're not actually all that interested in whether or not pigs consent. It seems to me that it's kind of like an after-the-fact consideration um, more or less to justify uh, our desire to use on the one hand and our feeling that these reality is closed on the other. I think that there is a way that we can see the connection here with Hellraiser, which is that one of the aspects of the bizarre and terrifying thing that uh, is their hell is that we have no idea why they like it. We can tell that they are crazy about it, the Cenobites mm-hmm. and the people being tortured by them. We we know that this is... Because in the second film, uh, as a sort of uh, explicit uh, mention of this, the doctor who gets transformed says, and to think, I hesitated. Oh, yeah. That's a really good line. Right. 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 And what we're supposed to get from this, I think, is the idea that the the reason that this stuff that they're doing that they're so into it and that we have no clue of what of what could possibly motivate them to enjoy themselves in this way is that there is a serious there's a very there's a fundamental difference in the uh the base identity of the the thing on the other side of that wall which is again like a difference between uh uh you know the liberals and the Tories in England, right? Like, what is with the conservatives? Why are they this way? Well, because I think there's this respect that that um, conservatives might have for this, like, for just the specter of total authority that something can have over them. Like, there's that monologue that Julia gives in the in the second movie that I, that's in the mono, that's in my monologue where she talks about, uh, no, this is my god, this is Leviathan. It's like she's she's with um, not cursed. She's with the doctor, and she's like, no, you you don't understand this. Like this is the guy who I talk to. This is mine. This is Leviathan, and it's like this fundamental sense of awe that transcends moral morality. It's it's like not even transcends. It's like not even in the same like ballpark. Like not even part of the of the conversation. It's just like, and then there's Leviathan, and that's it. Like that's the end. And I think it's interesting that sort of Leviathan is this creature, this great creature that is indifferent ultimately to humanity, 
that that's where all the freedom lies. Because, I mean... Is this movie pro Cenobite or not? Are we? Are we? Whose side are we? I on? think that the, each of the films goes oh, back God. and forth. Yeah, and I mean, and some of those films, I mean, they, they don't know what they're doing. Yeah, there, there's no really a perspective. There's no perspective in the space one. And this is what I was talking about <laughs> when I was saying that there isn't a consistent theology, mm. because the the values that Pinhead and the other Cenobites have. And we talk about the relationships that they have with each other, and that's never very clear, but it does seem that they all believe the same things, except that they do have a fight in the second one between the Cenobites. Uh, Who knows why or what that's for. Mommy and Daddy are fighting. (laughs) Some of them don't talk, though. Oh, Butterball doesn't talk. And neither does Chatter. Okay, let's, let's enumerate the Cenobites team. There's Pinhead, there's Vagina Throat, there's Butterball. He's literally called that. If you look, Google oh, yeah, him, no, he comes up as Butterball. There's a couple versions he's of He's the one with no eyes and his teeth. Yeah, yes, he's got the, the big No, that's Chatter. No, there's Chatterbox. That's the chattering one. Yeah, Butterball oh. does have no eyes, though. He wears uh, sunglasses. sunglasses. His he, eyes are sewed shut. His I eyes believe. are sewed shut. And he's got like a vagina stomach. Yeah, he is. Yeah, he's something pulled open in the middle. Fucked up. The and then there's the stomach. Cenobite that has the, um, who's the engineer. The engineer, whom I think is a really interesting sort of character i don't like, think he fits into the cenobite because he's not human enough and he's not wearing leather uh, he, no he is definitely a cenobite the cenobite universe is enormous but you got this information from the wiki yeah i got right. this from external that, is that thinking. canon i'm just it's canon be, it's just you, you wouldn't you wouldn't get it from the you just see something that we all missed in it <laughs> um so do you think do you think that there's uh there might be something worthwhile and, and kind of like reconsidering or thinking on uh, the mantra of the film, which is, what's your pleasure? The first and, film, and they do repeat that. Like, wait, the first one being, oh, yeah. Hellraiser 1. No, 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 I know, but wait, I'm sorry. Can, can... Yeah, I mean, it's the recurring, it's, the, yeah. it's more or less the first thing he says, and then it's pretty much the last thing he says. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it, it, then it opens the second film as well. Um and you could take that uh, like two ways. Right? You could be like, "What's your pleasure?" And he's asking, um, he's asking Frank literally to to sort of describe how it is that he obtains pleasure. And the second way of interpreting it, it would be as the question of, what, "What is this thing that is your pleasure?" Um, and not not as if he's asking to describe the particular uh, sort of um, the particularities of what gives you pleasure, but but actually. Um, what is what is pleasure? Like, what is pleasure to you? Mm. I think. Um, and it seems to me that that's, sorry, that's actually like a good question. It's an interesting question to ask. I think what so it is is that. Story, and or, it's good for that. It's good for that. It's good for that. It's good for that. It's good question. Sorry. I wonder if, like, it's the pleasure is something that the thing that's so terrifying about it. And for Frank and for everybody, but also really exciting about it is that's pleasure without an object of attachment. It's just this, it's this sort of like they're all become sort of desiring machines, right? Like there's this constant, which, which is to say that it doesn't, that it experiences what it desires is, is unnamed and unknowable, which is terrifying, right? Because it, it means that you're living in a world where there's no real human understanding of attachment or connections or relationships between Well, that's beings. what's going on in the first film. That's not what's going on in the second right. film. Right. See, like, I think that, 
Like, there were probably a lot of reasons why Clive Barker got less and less uh, enthusiastic about the films as they went on mm-hmm. and became more invested in attempting to destroy the Pinhead character, which I believe he uh, succeeded in doing with the most recent book, The Scarlet Gospels. Mm-hmm. At least that was the plan anyway. Yeah. I was telling Andre that Pinhead for Clive Barker seems to be his creep. Like, he's like, fucking hates talking about Pinhead. Creep, the, the Radiohead, Radiohead song. song. Yeah, right. Not the TLC song. Everybody loves Everybody that. Everybody loves that, and I'm sure Clive Barker does too. Yeah. Right. But yeah, in the first he's more film, of a don't go chasing waterfalls kind of guy. There's uh, in the first film, there's Maybe. like the villain seems to be how terrifying it is to want to possess the body of somebody else, right? Yeah. The the urge to be inside of and to control and to um, you know it's consume super, another person's body it's is super critical of masculinity i think in a lot of ways but then in the later films it's just pinhead is a monster and he's trying to kill you yeah it's true it's true that's mm. what the people want <laughs> I, don't know. I don't know if anybody wanted hellraiser 4 <laughs> yeah have, the one with adam scott is amazing what? oh is he the guy that's in space trying I to saw, solve it? i did see the uh, i saw hellraiser in space that's uh, i couldn't make that, it through that, that one was, <laughs> Doug Bradley got yeah, fat. That, was not a, that, was, that wasn't a very good movie. <laughs> no, but they, that one's cool, though, because it has the wig part at the beginning, right? What? The Victorian era. It's like starts way back in no, time. No, that's the fourth one where they're in Victorian. That's the one with Adam Scott. And and they're in, like, New Orleans or well, something. Well, there is a bit right, of a... but he's also in space trying to solve it on... Like, he's trying uh, to solve the puzzle on this space station. No, no, that's five. Yeah, no, the mm-hmm. fifth one does have a time element to it because it's about... Time travel, Hellraiser bloodlines. The the <laughs> guy who is eventually um, destroys, whatever that means, uh, Pinhead at the end, is the descendant of uh, La Marchande, the guy who created the puzzle box. Oh, right. yeah. Yeah, okay. totally. So there's a time. Yeah. So wait, is four the one that has Terry Farrell from... Uh, it's three, I think. Three That's has... the nightclub one. Yeah. That one is ridiculous. Yeah. It has the great line, I'm kind of a kitchen virgin, because the girl doesn't know how to cook. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Also, one thing I like about the cl- about the first and the second ones is Kirsty's taste in dudes. Like, they're all, like, these, like, really dweeby dudes that are just, like, very of their, like, 80s time. And they just kind of hang out and don't do anything, which is why I like Kirsty. I think that Kirsty gets shit done. She doesn't need men to help her out. Yeah, apart from Frank and Pinhead, the men in the Hellraiser series are all, like, guys who could have ended up on an ABC sitcom in the 80s, right? Like, these are guys that are... uh, this well, this close you, to being you know in perfect who strangers. There he is. Yeah, he's you know, Garrick. You know who the actor really also plays? Yeah, he's Garrick. He's, he's Garrick from Deep, Deep Space, Space Nine. Nine. Yeah, I I didn't put it together until we'd watched the movie three times, <laughs> and then and I was like, wait a second. I love his character on Deep Space Nine. He's he's my favorite character on the show. <laughs> on DS Nine. Oh yeah. You know, like I'm Quark. I think is more. Well, there the actors on that show were amazing. Oh, Aubergine Wong. Yeah, I was just thinking Odo. Armin Shimmerman and gosh, they were so good, such good actors on that show. Right. So nerds, um, there's also something really cool though about Hellraiser where they get these ex- like well, like in Star Trek, they get these extraordinary actors because they need them for these insane, bizarre stories. Yeah. They they need like mm-hmm. actors to be able to convey and that element of the Julia is amazing. She, she's like, great. She's she won a Tony recently. The woman that that plays her, not Julia. Julia doesn't go on to win a Tony. That's not Hellraiser. <laughs> she won a Tony for Hellraiser. <laughs> 
Actually, Hellraiser. Oh, God. Or Hellraiser on Ice. The oh. new Tony Kushner play. I'd watch a, a musical version of Hellraiser. Hellraiser. I, I'm sure they've made one, and I'm sure it's... Oh, well, it's probably really good. It's Maybe. But yeah, like, I and Andre made a good point when we were watching it. Thank you. The first, the first time where he was like, you know, this movie doesn't work at all for the first one unless you know from the get-go that Julia has this really fucked up intense relationship with Frank and you believe it. Like, you have to believe that Julia is in love with Frank or the whole thing is stupid, I think. Yeah. Because otherwise, why would she do all these horrible, disgusting things? Otherwise, it's it's like so many other horror movies where it's just like gore and you're like, but who cares? But like, no a, one I don't understand why there's a question to that. It's clear. Yeah. But the thing is that in another horror film, they would never go to the trouble of including like 30 minutes of backstory just to yeah. establish the motivation for the person who brings the the horror into the world. In anyone, like any other hands, it would just be like, oh, and then this this broad, you know, was in love with this guy, but we don't know why. And then all this horrible yeah. things happen. It's actually like they do a really good job with Julia as being like this really emotional stronghold. The I think. flashback scenes uh, to the relationship that they have with the, the glowing light and the... Yeah. You know, and it's all like 80s soap opera hair and everything. And oh, yeah. Even the in the Vaseline sex scene where she's having sex with him and he's just écorché, He's not even like he doesn't even have his skin on. Yeah. Or he bar- no, he no, he just has his skin. He just got his skin back. And he's like, the first thing they do is have sex. Ugh. And it's like, oh, Jesus. It falls apart. Like, <laughs> clearly. Oh, yeah. That's the inside. Come on now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I... Does she really? That's the point. That's how you roll. That's the point. I feel like the list of things where you get to a point where you're willing to murder people and have a monster in your attic consume them from the inside out. Like, this, maybe you try online dating first. She has some amazing looks. There is no online dating in 1987. Well, there amazing... was video dating. Whatever. There's she. Also, just I the love the. This is my th- why I think the movie is so like anti. It's like thinks men are stupid because like all the dudes she picks up from these bars are just like total idiots. Like they're just like a like a pastiche or a parody. Yeah. Not a pastiche, a parody of like what a what a you know bum, bumbling man. fool eighties British English man uh, businessman is. He's just and so more generic. Do you think under the skin is quoting? Do you think Under the Skin is quoting uh, Paul Razor? I haven't seen Under the Skin yet. The uh, Maria Devan film. Oh, wait. No, I haven't seen that one. Sorry. Uh, Probably is. I probably should have seen that for this podcast. (laughs) I just say this movie was gross and I closed my eyes through most of it. You did close your eyes a lot when you were And yet you've seen all of them. Yeah, you've seen more of them than I have. I couldn't even make it through the space one. But the space one probably the isn't space gross. one's not that I can watch the later ones because they're less gross. I also just think it's so funny that Doug Bradley got fat. I think that rules. I is think that the, the, the does he play Pinhead? <laughs> yeah, yeah. If there is a connection to Marina Devan and the uh, and through her to uh, uh, Francois Ozon, who also did work that was about suburban life and body horror, it's probably related to uh, a, a broader. Uh, body horror uh, approach that came out of the 80s, right? Mm-hmm. You know, like the the thing where it's... Like mannequin, even. You know, like something th- like that. if you're willing to have sex with this hole, how about I make a new one, you know? <laughs> this is... Yeah. It's gross, and I think that it's possibly just a, a large 
uh, it's an entire genre. It's not just that this is, um, you know, anytime somebody uh, wants to have sex with an artificial hole in somebody's body, that that's necessarily Hellraiser. What? Well, I meant for the the point of it in Under the Skin is just because um, something very similar happens with Scarlett Johansson where she she's like luring back oh, right. um, these oh. random guys that she picks up and sort of the bleak stop. Black Widow. Um, I was thinking of a different film. <laughs> I, I was thinking of the, the film In My Skin. I, that's about a, a woman who uh, becomes obsessed with cutting holes in her own body. Uh, that's a yeah totally... yeah yeah no 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 I'm I'm sorry under under the skin not in uh, okay uh, sure not in my skin and um, yeah so so Scargo is like um, is this she's working she's an alien you know as as you do and uh, she's working for some sort of company that harvests humans and they suppose exports them off world or something and uh, so the way she gets the job done is she she goes to the club and she kind of lures them back and then she has their innards uh, sucked out. Um, in her in her sort of uh, factory, and uh, it occurs to me that the way you were describing it there, um, uh, oh, is, is very. It, you could like if you were just describing what Julia does, uh, mm-hmm. and then what um, Scargo's character does in Under the Skin. They, they actually are, are pretty close to identical. Um, yeah, you're right. Going out guys to harvest like harvest their innards, and and just like. Uh, Sucking their innards out from the inside, and I suppose like. But that's like a that's also a fifties B movie thing, like the Black Widow, or the you know, like the Curse of was it the Oh, like I Walked with a Zombie, Uh, yeah, or the Bee Woman, or something like that, Hornet Wasp Woman, (laughs) like, (laughs) or even like Attack of the Fifty Foot Woman, like this weird, like I don't know, fear of empowered women being. Sublimated through. Uh, also, we're going back to the sci-fi. Freud thing. We're going back to right. vagina dentata. Yeah. yeah, but I mean, yeah, I mean, but that that is a, like a trope or whatever of how like the yeah the. But the thing I like the man eater. I mean, you could talk about uh, Holland Oates. But the thing, the thing I like about Hellraiser so much is that it does all that vagina dentata shit and doesn't make it like a, doesn't make it misogynist. Like it's, if anything, it's like, like Julia's the hero of this of these movies in some ways because she's she's trying to figure it out just like by everybody else but she's also compelled by her own desires which makes her weak and therefore sort of relatable in a way you know i don't think maybe not relatable. A hero in this movie it's a strength of the first two films that it gives you this idea that it's not that these guys are these monsters are evil and that the heroes are good but rather that they are they're from a completely different universe mm-hmm. They have a completely different set of values. Their experience yeah. of life is completely different. And, you know, when you ask Pinhead why he does what he does, he's like, I'm trying to show you pleasures. I'm yeah. trying to... I'm just trying to be a good host, you know? <laughs> well, remember what the end when the, the, the bum turns into Satan. Oh, that's yeah. That's pretty crazy. What do you think? Well, that's... The, see, that's where I think the objection thing is really the Gustave objection thing is playing out is with the bum because he's a little bit like Bob right where he's just sort of like this thing that's sort of like Twin Peaks Bob where he's just like this sort of no not your cat (laughs) (laughs) where he's just sort of this thing that's really scary and lives out and is something somehow related to the woods or the outside and sort of exceed it doesn't isn't really part of our daily life isn't really part of our Mm -hmm. life at all but he's just sort of there as a presence and then, and it, but it's a sort of, so he's sort of this moment of abjection because the thing is, 
it can't really be object anymore once it becomes familiar, which is what happens with Julia and the whole body thing and her whole like dealing with Frank and fucked up body. You know, is when, that it's when, not object to her anymore. But then the it th- becomes sort of hot. Wait, what for that? her, for her, not for. Oh, me. that's an interesting point. Yeah, yeah, right. Right, now that makes sense. So I, um, I, I think he's he's the Kristeva objection, and then he transforms into something else because he is, I don't know, what do you make of that guy at the end of the first movie? Well, that's the one where it clearly ties it to, like, Christian hell because he looks like Baphomet or... Oh, yeah, when he like turns a, into that skeleton When he turns thing. it, yeah, yeah, like, they're like, like that's like... Like the right. Yeah, like, like old school Satan. Or yeah. new school. Satan. <laughs> Known Satan. Satan at school. The <laughs> new coke of <laughs> Satan. Was the, yeah. was the guy... Was the guy who turns into like the dragon skeleton? Was he just like the, I don't know, like the pickup agent for the um, bad orientalist sort of? Um, oh yeah, he flies. That's how it gets back. Stereotype. He flies it back. Okay. Is he like he's like his like his his I don't know his like errand boy or something? He's like go and catch the box. So you can, just like explained the movie to me. Other. Yeah, because like, how does it, it end up back in Singapore or he Morocco or the wherever? Fucking box. Thank you, Gabe. I feel like an idiot. He's That's like the <laughs> Falcon. <laughs> yeah. So then, it's, <laughs> so well, then there's there's just I mean, like a certain I don't know. I, I don't, number of wizards not, doing wizardy things. <laughs> that's one of the weirder things that happened in a pretty weird movie. To be quite honest with you, but that's one of the weirdest things. I felt like there's be- not a lot of foreshadowing. The yeah. back guy's going to turn into like a giant skeleton dragon. All that we see him I mean, do really is uh, silently eat a fistful of crickets. Ugh. My favorite thing, though, is that when I was watching him, I was thinking a lot about, like, homeless people are sort of used a lot in movies like this, where they're sort of like, oh, is he evil? Or is it, and then, but, like, I was thinking about... Like in Mulholland Drive. Or, like, in Home Alone, where the lady, the bird lady... And everyone, and everyone's sort of scared of her. This is Home Alone too. This is Home Alone two, last the, in the, New York. The best Home Alone, and uh, she and she's sort of this scary lady that's feeding the pigeons outside the church. Well, the, and, the and, homeless guy in the first Home Alone is also a scary guy. That's true, but then he ends up not being scary. Right, and neither is she. So yeah, oh yeah, I forgot about the first ho- the first homeless guy in the first movie. Yeah, and so, so you you thought that he was like he was like gonna be a friendly uh, I didn't think homeless man who saved. No, good. no, no, no. I definitely He's gonna hit on the head with a shovel. I definitely the... did not think he was gonna be a good guy. Um, but I thought there was like <laughs> it, so I, I saw that as like a parallel. Like there's like a way in which homeless people are treated as as abject, and then they transform into the non-abject because he stops being objection. When he transforms into something recognizable, which is to say, Baphomet or whatever the fuck. Baphomet. Can I ask yeah. what you mean by objection? Because that word's been going around a lot, and I never really know what people mean when they say that. Uh, as I, I think I wrote in a paper one time when I had to define my terms section of it, where I was like, to define objection is that which exceeds limits and must be expelled, and that's the like the easiest, most succinct thing, which is to say that it's. It's, it's um, the stuff that made you want to close your eyes and yeah. not look at the screen during the part where the goo turns into a guy. Yeah, it's it's you can't quite name it. Sometimes sometimes the Extremely uncanny Extremely bad or severe. Sometimes uncanny can be object because it's sort of it's sort of um like sh- I mean shit. It's like it's just is you, you ugh, it's there but what the fuck? Like get out, you know. It's sunk to or existing in a low state or condition. 
Is that what it says? Yeah. But well, I really look it up because I'm not, like, uh, but we're not talking about the word abject in the yeah. sense of the like the dictionary definition. Not like it, when Richard the Third says that we are the queen's abjects and must obey. Yeah. You know, he's not just saying you know, like in that sense, he's saying, "Oh, we're just lowly and we have to do whatever she right. says." But we're. Uh, I believe yeah. Eleanor, and correct me if I'm wrong here, yeah. is in the Kristeva sense, the abject is the stuff that is uh, incompatible with your capacity to experience the world. Yeah, it's, it's in, it, it confronts you with the fact that your body is porous and full of holes and not, con- and not, yeah, like, there, not there are, like a complete constitution. There are all like, sorts of things that are abject, yeah. like the inside of the human body, like the fragility of the mind. Yeah. You know, like... Uh, like the mind-body dichotomy um, is constantly... Like once you... Sexuality in certain yeah, situations is abject. Once you disrupt that, then it becomes abject. If you're doing it right. <laughs> yeah. No, I think you meant object when you're talking about sex. <laughs> sure. What? <laughs> anyway, um, I don't know. I mean, it's the, uh, the 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 particular limit that's being usually being transgressed by objection is um, the like uh, object subject limit. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's. It's something that it's something that distorts uh, the clear delineation of, of like self and other, mm-hmm. um, and possibly forces a recognition or forces uh, perhaps a movement um, between those two categories. Yeah. Um, One thing I like about abjection is that it necessarily involves movement. It's never like a static. It's not like a, a monument or an event that sort of confronts you. It's always to be negotiated. Because you can't just let it exist. It right. has to be dealt with no matter what. And that's what, I mean, that's what I think makes it scary. That's what I think makes that homeless guy scary in the movie. I think... Yeah, I mean, the, the, the subject-object distinction is, is um, pretty powerful, uh, at least within sort of uh, Freudian theory, such that it can, it can reassert itself and sort of come to accommodate um, these sorts of disruptions and then recode the meaning of something that was uh, previously abject um, or what had been abject uh, mm-hmm. to include it um, within uh, sort of a well-ordered uh, subject-object distinction. And this is the um, this is one of the things that people get from horror films, right? Yeah. Like they they benefit from uh, you know somebody identifies this thing which. Uh, causes you to look away or causes you to shriek in terror or causes you to have nightmares or whatever. And they give you this opportunity to uh, integrate it. Yeah, and I think in this movie, especially with, like, the Cenobites and Pinhead talking about, like, and w- or with the whole thing being, like, pain is pleasure and they're sort of indistinguishable from one another, that itself is abject because it's it's sort of a conflation of the senses, which goes back to, I think, my Marxist thing, where I think there's the Marxian thing about the senses theorizing themselves and, like, the way that which and how workers and the way that people um, work together to make something is, like, theorizing the, the way that we can exist. Like, the way we the way that humanity should be is th- is already in process. You know, it's just it's con- a constant renewal, a constant um, revolution, right? A perpetuation of revolution. A churning. A churning. A weeping and a moaning and a churning and a gnashing of teeth. And I think, I don't know, I think there's, with that lateral, that lateralization of of experience and sensation seems to me like super egalitarian. And like, that's the thing that I think is a little bit utopian about, about the Cenobite hell. Okay. 
Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think like, that... In a fucked up way. I don't want to go there. <laughs> Sorry? I feel like there's a strong case to be made that, that um, it's not just that Tim Ed would say, I'm trying to give you pleasure, um, but that, like, Tim is giving you pleasure. Yeah. Sure, like of course. Like, at least I'm... within the, the sort of realm of how we, how, how we understand these sorts of terms is that... Um, he has. He, it's not a sort of regular pleasure. It's not a banal pleasure. It's a, it's a form of pleasure that is uh, is shocking to the limits of the self, yeah. um, and may take much the appearance of pain. But but uh, I'm I'm with I'm with Tenet on this one. Um, although a, I will not open the box. It's uh, a Doctor Faustus. I, thing. I, uh, yeah. He's quite, he's quite an idealist that one. Um, what do you say? No, yeah. it's it's a totally Faust though because. All these people, like, he's giving you that, and then the contract is you have to give him his, your soul. Yeah. And that's the whole reason why they come to get that girl, and they're like, what? One of them got away? No one gets away. Like, but his- I think you yeah, get but- the impression from the films that the soul isn't worth a hell of a also, lot. Also, you know what he's going to do with your soul once he gets it? Is he's going to tear it apart. He says he'll tear your soul apart, so who yeah. fucking cares? Like- well, that's how, he lo- that's <laughs> well, how they get their But what were you going to do with it? <laughs> yeah. That's what they want to do. That's what hell is. It destroys your soul. Yeah, and... Yeah, so he's going to tear your soul apart and it's gone. I think I want to wrap up by plug with plugs right now. I want us to plug stuff, promote their stuff. And because I know, and I, f- I failed to introduce Gabe as this at the beginning, and I'm very apologetic. Gabe is the leading critical swinologist. And proof of this is actually... Hey, hey leading, please. Don't give me too much better. Okay. And he just had a book I that know, came I just, out. I just said... Uh, <laughs> yes, that's right. And I just spent the last weekend at a uh, a major international conference that I organized uh, called Pig Out, Hogging Humans in International, pardon me, in, in uh, Historical and Global Context. That sounds awesome. Um, Is it cool? So that's, that's why I have that pig on the brain. Yeah. Was What's it a good conference? Oh, it was, it was amazing. It was fantastic. We had, um, we had a bunch of people from all sorts of disciplines and... I, and I several learned, pigs. We, we I was going to say, did you have bacon? Twenty-six hours straight. It was it was pretty incredible. Wow. Um, like nonstop. I learned so much about pigs. You <laughs> anywhere in the world, you want to know about pigs? I, I can actually tell you. But I did. I, I just I wrote a book. And it just came out. Um, mm-hmm. So if people are interested. It's uh, a history of um, uh, it's a gendered history of 4-H clubs, um, rural agricultural clubs organized by the U.S. Department of Agriculture, mm-hmm. um, called the 4-H Harvest. Sexuality in the State in Rural America, mm-hmm. just released by the University of Pennsylvania Press. Cool. Cool. Very fancy. Nice press. Wow, I've never plugged my book before. That was, I mean, not like Good job. I've done it in writing, but, you know, did that, did that go well? Oh, that totally. That sounded great. That was super fun. Thank you, you so much, Gabe. Are you, you going to buy my book? <laughs> We're going to put a picture up on the blog of Eleanor holding up the book and yeah. pointing at it like David Letterman used to do. Yeah. Nice. Yes, I'll be... I don't believe you. I don't, I don't think you're going to do that. <laughs> I, I want to read the book. We're gonna buy, we might no. do it. We might buy the book. We, we're gonna, Wait, no, we're, you just we, said we might buy no, the book. No, we are going to do it. I like it. the might. Andre <laughs> okay. made it. All right. Well, no. I'm going to buy the book, and I'm going to read it, and I might let Eleanor read it. Oh, oh shit. Ooh. Okay, no, we are going to buy the book. I just know that okay. it's expensive. But it's okay. <laughs> when do you ever pay for anything? I'm going to buy the book. Okay, fine. Okay, uh, we're so to... happy about the book. No, it's really good, and it's uh, and also 
if you are listening listeners, ask your libraries to get Gabe's book. Because that's how knowledge spreads. Yeah. Consult your local library or your grocer's freezer. <laughs> and uh, you know what? Recommend it to your local 4-H club. Yeah. Oh, sure. Why not? Yeah. All right. They, they might not like it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Thank you so much for being with us, Gabe. Yeah. Oh, uh, Eric, do you have anything? Yeah. Oh, uh, my God. Yeah. It was fun. Eric, what do you got to plug? Uh, if you're in Havana, Cuba... There's going to be a video I made called Bonding of my cat with his claws out uh, performing the cat, you know, kneading thing that they do as a form of bonding and such on my stomach. And it's a little Clive Barkery too. Yeah. There's like some uh, yeah, teeth, it's, but claws There's involved. flesh being torn by the claws. Yeah. 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 We watched that as a preview and then we watched Hellraiser. <laughs> so that's going to be screened in, in Havana. Very exciting. And then after that, then I'll put it on Vimeo. And uh, Callow Media Empire is welcoming a brand new program. A new franchise. Yes. Uh, Asia Saunders is a vlog on her uh, YouTube channel called Fucking Delightful. So if you do a search for Fucking Delightful, uh, you'll find it. And It's uh, the first not porn hit you get. Yeah. The, <laughs> the first right. episode is up right now where uh, she talks about... Uh, getting lost on the bus as a child, and uh, we've got new episodes coming up every week. So Asia, as listeners might recognize, is a former uh, special, special ghost, ghost and probably a future special ghost that has been on this podcast. So yeah, and she's special. awesome, and it's a really funny show, and you should check it out for yeah. sure. All right, noisy ghost out. Boo.